A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co/insomnia. Do you snore at night? Do you sleep a lot but still feel super tired during the day? If you have followed my podcast for a while, you possibly already know these are not normal. There's one type of sleep disorder called sleep apnea, actually can harm our health much more than insomnia. So what is sleep apnea, and how can we identify it, and what we can do about it? Today, it's our huge honor to have Dr. Kamen Rammer to be with us. He is the current president of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine Board of Directors. He's also a sleep medicine physician and a professor at the Mayo Clinic. If you want to learn all the warning signs of sleep apnea and what you can do to protect your health, join me to find out more. Hi, Dr. Rammer. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Thank you. Really appreciate this opportunity for having me, Dr. Su. I'm so happy to have you. I know you're an expert in sleep medicine field, and I really want to know more from you about this common sleep problem we call sleep apnea. Because myself, I do have a severe family history of sleep apnea, which I have no idea of. I always thought snoring is normal until I start learning more about sleep. So I want to ask you more: like, how common is sleep apnea? Well, that's a very important question. Thank you for asking. Obstructive sleep apnea, as the name implies, there's an obstruction to the airflow from outside to the lungs, and the obstruction can be at the nose level, at the soft tissues at the back of the throat, or at the base of the tongue area. And when the obstruction happens in one or all of these three areas, then the airflow to the lung gets cut off, and that results in drop in oxygen saturation. And the oxygen level in the system tends to go down. The good part is the brain is、uh, smart enough to realize that this is not normal, and so it wakes up to open up the airway, and the oxygen level goes back up. But this process ends up repeating throughout the night in people with severe obstructive sleep apnea. And snoring, as you rightly point out, is one of the symptoms because when you have a little bit of narrowing of the upper airway, snoring can happen. If it narrows to the point that it completely closes up the airway. Then you might develop obstructive sleep apnea. To your question about the prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea, how common it is? Unfortunately, it's pretty common. About eight to fourteen percent of the population have obstructive sleep apnea. The unfortunate aspect related to this is many of them don't even realize they have sleep apnea. They are still undiagnosed at this particular stage. Snoring is one of the symptoms. For obstructive sleep apnea, and so if somebody does snore, I wouldn't expect people to assume that that's normal because it could be a symptom of underlying sleep disordered breathing, like obstructive sleep apnea. So, how come there's so many people have no idea they have such a sleep disorder? Do they just think they sleep wonderfully? No, that's a good question. It's very possible that people, and I think we all know this, people. End up assuming that snoring is normal when we know for sure that snoring is not normal, 
because snoring, as we just talked about, usually happens because there's narrowing of the airway. And when you have narrowing of the airway, it creates turbulent flow uh, when the air from outside tries to get to the lung. And this turbulence is usually what tends to produce snoring. When people do snore, in the good old days, I still remember people used to say, oh yeah, uh, my kid snores, my dad snores, so that's why I'm snoring. And they assume that this is all normal and it's okay to, uh, to snore. Now we know clearly that that's one of the symptoms of uh, obstructive sleep apnea. The other possibility uh, in terms of why it's undiagnosed is because uh, people tend to normalize their symptoms. So one of the consequences of untreated obstructive sleep apnea is feeling tired, fatigued, sleepy during the daytime. So some people might end up taking naps during the daytime. Some people might uh, accidentally doze off while reading a book or even worse, while driving a car when they're waiting in front of a traffic light. When they tend to normalize these symptoms, then they don't tend to seek attention as one should be to figure out what's happening. The awareness of unintended consequences of not treating sleep apnea is not clearly understood. So for example, when sleep apnea is not treated, it can lead to higher risk of strokes, heart attacks, irregular heartbeat. And when people don't realize the importance of recognizing that and treating the sleep apnea, then they may not look to seek attention or to address the snoring or their underlying sleep apnea when it comes to that point. So I, I think these are some of the common reasons possibly why it's still not diagnosed. The other, from a provider perspective, a sleep medicine specialist who can diagnose sleep apnea and the primary care providers where most of our patients tend to go to see uh, as a first stage, many of them may not be completely educated or be completely aware of obstructive sleep apnea to ask their patients about sleep apnea too, or ask their patients about snoring, the quality of sleep. And then once they figure out that the patients might be at risk for sleep apnea, then they could potentially refer them for diagnosis. But if they don't have that awareness and our education related to looking for sleep apnea, then there's a possibility that sleep, sleep apnea could be missed as well too. Yeah, so sounds like knowing and understanding the knowledge, the symptoms can really help us to be more aware of what's happening to our body to catch any warning signs, basically. Absolutely. I think uh, you, you summarized it really well. <laughs> Thank you. So the, a lot of uh, listeners may ask us, how can they catch some warning signs on their own, right? How do they know they may need to consider to consult with a sleep doctor or some specialist to understand whether they need a checkup? So I'll start off with uh, something that we talked about that's about snoring. So in fact, uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine just conducted a survey and found out that about nearly 70% of the uh, Americans who sleep with a bed partner report that their partner actually snores while sleeping. Not everyone who snores has obstructive sleep apnea. Most, if not all, who have sleep apnea have snoring. So if you do have snoring and maybe some associated symptoms of feeling tired, fatigued, sleepy during the daytime, I think it's very important to seek out help 
and uh, evaluate this further to see if this could be an undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea that needs treatment. So number one is snoring. Number two is to look for other symptoms such as choking or gasping episodes during sleep. So sometimes the bed partners might say that, oh, I've heard my bed partner choke or gasp for air in the middle of the night. And sometimes the patients themselves could might have realized that they have those symptoms, particularly during the afternoon when they take a nap, as they are falling asleep, they might snort and wake up in the middle, uh, in, in the middle of their nap or during the middle of their sleep. If they do have that, then that's again a very high uh, likelihood that the patients may have obstructive sleep apnea and might need to seek diagnosis and treatment. The third symptom is fatigue or daytime sleepiness. Various reasons why somebody might be feeling sleepy or tired or fatigued during the daytime. One of the common symptoms of undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea is feeling tired and uh, sleepy during the daytime. So if you have snoring along with that or gasping episodes along with daytime sleepiness and fatigue, maybe time to seek some help to see what's going on out there. Obesity, though not everyone who has obesity has obstructive sleep apnea, obesity is a big risk factor for sleep apnea. So if there is a person who has snoring and is also obese, then it's always a good idea to screen and check to see if that patient might be having obstructive sleep apnea. The other couple of signs to keep in mind are high blood pressure. So if somebody's taking medications for high blood pressure to control their blood pressure and they also snore, then it might be a good idea to look for sleep apnea because sometimes treating obstructive sleep apnea tends to help with that blood pressure control even better too. Uh, and if they are feeling they're not getting enough refreshed sleep at night, or they're waking up periodically during the night to go to the bathroom and are having difficulty falling back to sleep when they come back, these are some of the other symptoms that this could represent an undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea. So if you have any or all, some or all of these symptoms, it, it might be helpful to seek uh, someone with expertise in sleep medicine to evaluate this book. Oh, wow. So these are wonderful, you know, list, I think, checklist for our audience. They can go one by one. And sounds like they don't have to have all of this, right? If they no, have right. one of this or multiple of these symptoms, it should be a strong enough signal. Absolutely. I think you're right. For example, if you just have snoring alone and it's been getting worse, uh, I think it's a good idea to get that checked out. Uh, or if you have snoring and choking episodes, then you're very likely to have an undiagnosed sleep apnea. So you're, you're absolutely right. If you go through the list and if you have one or more of those, it's a good idea to seek some help and see what's going on. Then uh, actually there are a lot of audience ask me, uh, they know I'm going to interview you. So want me ask you, how can they find a provider? How they, can they find a sleep center to really check this out? They, can they just go to their primary care doctor or how they can find a certified sleep doctor to really do some checkups? Yeah, so I, I think uh, sometimes uh, it's a good idea to, uh, two ways to do this. So one is to check with your primary care provider because they may then be able to refer you to a sleep specialist. The second is uh, directly seeking help with a sleep medicine specialist. So if you go to the ASM, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine website, 
there are a list of board certified sleep medicine providers that you can get and see if there are anyone close to your area that you could then potentially seek help from. There are also more than 2,000 accredited sleep centers, sleep medicine facilities in the United States. And so there could be one close by you. And so they might have sleep medicine providers who can then help you to get this evaluated further too. Cool. Yeah, I will put all those websites to the show note so people, when they listen to our conversation, uh, it's easier for them to find those links. Sure. And the other uh, point that I wanted to also quickly make, uh, Dr. Shu, is uh, there's also uh, another website, and actually this might be more user-friendly for our uh, uh, patients and for folks who are listening, is sleepeducation.org. So sleepeducation.org. That also has a list of uh, accredited sleep centers. One might be able to quickly find one closer to your area as well, too. Oh, great. So the sleep centers on that website, are they all uh, certified by ASM board? That's right. Exactly. Great. Yeah. So that's very reliable. Exactly. It's like a joint commission uh, certifying a hospital based on their quality and safety. Similarly, AASM, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, has a process that they put in place that accredits a sleep center if they meet certain criteria, if they meet certain bar of quality and safety. And so the sleepeducation.org website will list all those accredited centers through the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. And they have a list of providers that then one could seek help from at that point. Great. So I also noticed, actually, there are a lot of people call themselves sleep coach, and there are also board certified sleep doctors. So when our audience are seeking help, what can we do to help them distinguish and find the reliable, well-trained doctor to really work on exactly the um, sleep apnea issue? Yeah, that's a good question. So a sleep coach might be someone who might help you with offering tips or coaching you from a sleep perspective to help you to fall asleep or try to help you to maintain sleep. They may not have the credentials to make a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. A diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea can be made only by a medical provider. And the accredited sleep centers listed on the sleepeducation.org website are the ones who you might want to seek out if you're looking to have a diagnosis made of a particular sleep disorder. Yeah, that um, now it's a question I really want to clarify with you is you mentioned only a medical provider can help a patient diagnose OSA. Then uh, what does the diagnosis look like? It's just a questionnaire, ask questions, or is there anything else? That's a good point. So there are questionnaires. The questionnaires are more as a screening tool. Uh, so uh, sometimes your provider, your primary care provider, might ask you a few questions, screening questions, to see if you are at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. And if and so the questionnaires are mainly to assess the risk and to see if you need to be referred further for further evaluation. So if the screening question, so sometimes your dentist might have some screening questions, your primary care provider might ask you some screening questions, similar to the symptoms that we talked about, like snoring, stopping to breathe at night, quality of sleep at night, feeling sleepy or tired. So if, if you pass the screening question, 
in a way that you're at a higher risk for sleep apnea, then they may refer you to a sleep provider. When you go to a sleep medicine provider, the way we might make a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea is by doing a sleep study. A sleep study can be done either at home or could be done in the sleep lab or at a sleep center. And the sleep medicine provider usually then makes that determination at that point to see if this is somebody is at high risk for sleep apnea and then decide whether this is a study that could be done at home to make a diagnosis or does a patient need to spend a night in the sleep center or a sleep lab to make a diagnosis. So the sleep study is the way we make a formal diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, sleep study, it sounds like something necessary for the diagnosis. Exactly. Uh, so if someone really worried about sleep study, I got very parents really worry about sending their children into a sleep lab to do a sleep study. They want to know um, what does it look like? Will there be any danger to the children? Will there be any, you know, radiation or something? So can you help us understand a little bit more of what that look like? Absolutely. The sleep study is very safe and there's no radiation exposure. Sleep studies have been done for more than 20, 30, 40 years now, and it's a very safe study to do. So when somebody has a sleep study done at the sleep lab or a sleep center, like when they do it for kids who are at risk for sleep apnea, we put electrodes to the scalp area so that we can record the electrical activity of the brain. And that helps us to figure out if the person is falling asleep and what's the quality of sleep when they fall asleep is all things that we can track using the electrodes that's placed on the, on the brain or on the scalp. The electrodes are usually, uh, there's a gel that we put on that lets the electrode to stick to the scalp area, which can easily be washed out and removed the next day when somebody takes a shower. There are some wires and probes that are placed near the nose, nostril area, near the mouth area, as well as uh, some bells that are put around the chest and abdomen. And these are things that helps to monitor someone's breathing. And so that's how we can figure out if a patient is slowing down their breath or stopping to breathe altogether, that these monitors in the nose, mouth, throat, uh, chest, and abdomen area help, help us to use that information to make that determination whether somebody's slowing down or stopping breathing. We also put a probe on their finger, and this helps us to measure their oxygen level while they're sleeping. Similarly, we have electrode, a couple of electrodes placed on the chest to look at the EKG or the heart rhythm while somebody's sleeping. So all these things are, as you can see, are normally done when you're, you go to visit a doctor. But when a sleep lab, we put these all together and try to monitor all the parameters while somebody's sleeping in the sleep center. So it's a very safe study, and there's always somebody monitoring and keeping a close eye on things while you're sleeping. So that way, if there's any trouble with the electrode coming off, or you have some issues that you want to talk about, you can always call the technician who's on call, who's monitoring the sleep study. They can come and help and uh, rectify or clarify any questions that you might have at that point, too. The sleep study that's done at home is something uh, there are different types of sleep studies now which can be uh, which are portable ones very easy to take it home 
and you can do the study at home. These are a lot less intrusive. And when patients get this done at home, uh, they are sleeping in their own bed and they will have less monitors than when doing a sleep study in the sleep lab. Patients who are at higher risk for sleep apnea, we could then do those studies at home because then we just are looking with monitors to see how often they slow down or stop breathing. And we don't need the electrodes on the brain scalp area to monitor their brain electrical activity. And the ones that are done at home are very safe as well too. That's why I think coming to a sleep provider helps to make that determination. Is this a study that could be done at home? Or does it really need to be done in the sleep lab with a few more extra monitors being placed when, if it is being done in the sleep lab? Great, great. I hope uh, whoever are listening will really eased right now that uh, to know sleep study is very effective and very safe. And you can do it either in a sleep lab or at home. Exactly. And I know um, it's um, patients are properly so still feel concerned in terms of wanting to sleep in the sleep lab because of uh, a new environment. And plus, if electrodes are placed on you, it's not the best place to easily fall asleep. Some sleep medicine providers, depending on how you might feel about sleeping in a sleep center, might even sometimes offer the option of taking a sleeping aid. Uh, so that you might be able to fall asleep easier in the sleep center or sleep lab. So that's an option that's also discussed with the sleep provider at the time when the determination is made of whether to do the sleep study in the sleep center or sleep lab at that point. Yeah, th- that's a good point because I, I heard a lot of patients actually talking about the, what if they cannot sleep well in the sleep lab, then the result possibly going to be biased. It won't be able to reflect how they normally sleep. Exactly. So I think, uh, and that's where it goes back to having that discussion with the sleep provider to make that determination. Because if one is looking for a diagnosis of a sleep disordered breathing, like obstructive sleep apnea, taking a sleeping pill shouldn't matter because it's more important that one is sleeping with those electrodes on to figure out whether somebody's at risk for sleep apnea. However, if one is doing a sleep study in the sleep lab, to make a different sleep disorder diagnosis or different sleep disorder like sleepwalking or seizure activity. In those situations, we may try to avoid giving a sleeping pill at that point. So it depends on the underlying reason why we are doing a sleep study. And if it's for sleep apnea diagnosis, taking a sleeping aid shouldn't affect the test results because the main goal is to make sure somebody is able to sleep with those electrodes on to figure out what's happening from a, a sleep apnea perspective. Oh, wow. So sounds like sleep study can give us a lot of different data to diagnose different things. Exactly. Cool. So now if someone is diagnosed, they meet the criteria to be clinically diagnosed as sleep apnea. Then, uh, what are some common treatment options out there? So, the most common treatment option is something called a CPAP, CPAP, and it stands for continuous positive airway pressure. So, it's a machine that blows pressurized air, which comes through a hose, and uh, people have to wear a mask so that that pressurized air can gently be pushed to the back of the throat while somebody's sleeping so that it keeps the airways open and thereby 
keeping the airway open, oxygen can get to the lungs and, and the body can get the oxygen it needs. And so that's the most common option that's used for treating sleep apnea is CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. There are other options to treat uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And that's where having an open discussion with the sleep provider after making a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea comes into play. And the, and the alternative options include positional therapy. Positional therapy is where if on the sleep study, we find out that the sleep apnea is worse on your back and gets better when the patient sleeps on their side, positional therapy could be used where things like putting some backpack pillows or tennis balls, stitch their pajamas to the center of their back might be a couple of options that prevents people from accidentally turning onto their back and forces them to sleep on their side. So that's positional therapy to treat sleep apnea if it's predominantly worse on the back versus on their side. There's another option called oral appliance therapy. Oral appliance therapy is like a mouth guard or a mouth splint that's made by a dentist or an orthodontist tailored to fit the teeth and the mouth. And there's a screw in the front that's usually adjusted so that it gently pulls the lower jaw forward and then it pulls the tongue forward, opening up the space at the back of one's throat so that sleep apnea can be treated. Usually oral appliances uh, therapy is recommended for patients with mild or moderate sleep apnea who are unable to tolerate CPAP are clearly that they don't want to go with CPAP, then we may try an oral appliance therapy at that point. Surgery is another option, though we don't tend to offer that as a first-line therapy. Surgery is something that we consider if other modalities, treatment modalities to treat obstructive sleep apnea have not been successful. In addition to some of these uh, clear-cut treatment options, there are a few other things that one could do that might help with mild sleep apnea or with snoring. This includes quitting smoking because smoking causes inflammation of the upper airway and that causes swelling that can narrow the airways. So quitting smoking, avoiding alcohol. So alcohol tends to relax the upper airway muscles and that tends to make sleep apnea or snoring worse. So uh, avoiding alcohol would be another important measure to take. Some people might have allergies, and so taking a decongestant to open up the nose might also help in cases of snoring or mild sleep apnea too. So these are some of the other options, but the most common treatment option is still continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP. Oh, great to know. There are so many different things we can do. Okay. Exactly. And I think that's another good reason to seek treatment if you have any of the symptoms that we talked about earlier, because Though CPAP is the most common and most often used treatment option, there are other things that we could look into if somebody is unable to use or unable to tolerate CPAP. Yeah, great. I also know there are some people, you know, when they cannot tolerate CPAP, they start search online, try to find whatever way can help themselves, right? Yeah. Uh, they don't want to see a doctor, they want to treat themselves. I heard some people uh, can use certain device to close their mouths. I want to ask you if they think use mouth breathing is a problem, underlying problem for their breathing, and they use whatever thing to close their mouth at night, will that make the breathing worse or better? Yeah, no, I think uh, I would uh, strongly suggest to have that uh, reviewed by your sleep provider or your, or your primary care provider. 
And as you rightly point out, there's a possibility that sleep apnea could get worse because it depends on how the mouth is closing. So if the mouth is closing and it pushes your jaw backward, it can make sleep apnea worse. Sometimes people open their mouths to breathe at night because their nose is stuffed up. And so the treatment there might be to help clear up the nose or the nasal passages to see if that might then prevent them from needing to close their mouth at night. So before using a device to close their mouth to help with snoring or sleep apnea, I would definitely recommend talk to your sleep provider to make sure that that's an option to even consider doing in your particular situation because it might make things worse. And that's a, it's a possibility that it could make things worse. So you may want to get that checked out before doing it. Mm, so when people use any of this internet methods, be cautious about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, be cautious and seek some help before uh, seeing if that's the right thing to do for you. Right. You also mentioned some lifestyle change may help a little bit. Do you think exercise more can help people with their sleep? Absolutely. I think exercise is good overall in general for health. And I think it definitely helps for sleep apnea as well. Of course, if you have severe sleep apnea, exercise alone may not help. You may need CPAP in addition to exercise. But exercise might also help you to sleep better at night from a quality of sleep perspective. It might maybe help you to lose some weight because uh, obesity is one of the risk factors for sleep apnea. So that might get a little better too. So exercise overall in general is a good thing for for the body and for health overall in general. So I think I would recommend that anyway. Uh, Some people ask about exercise for the throat area, neck stretch exercises or tongue exercises. Uh, Is that helpful? And studies have shown that it does help a little bit for mild sleep apnea, maybe, but not for moderate or severe form of sleep apnea. So if you're doing exercise of the throat areas or tongue areas, specifically for sleep apnea, I think that's where, again, I would suggest to make sure you talk to your sleep provider so that they could monitor you closely and see if the sleep apnea is getting better before and after doing exercise for a one to three month period. Because if it's not, then one may need to look at other treatment options to treat the sleep apnea. But if uh, usually exercise for the throat area, tongue area is usually done for mild form of sleep apnea at the most. Okay, great. Good to know. There are so many options. There are so many different directions people can choose. But overall, sounds like sleep apnea is treatable. It's something we can diagnose, we can find a way to make it better. Absolutely. I know people have also asked about whether is there a pill for sleep apnea. Unfortunately, at this stage, we don't have a pill for sleep apnea, like having a pill for high blood pressure, for example. But it's hopefully coming in the near future. Um, And there are studies that are being done right now, currently, to look at the effectiveness of a pill to treat sleep apnea. So I would continue to encourage people talk to their sleep provider about these options because things that are in existence currently could get better as uh, years go by down the road as we get more of these studies and and more other options coming our way. There's a list of other things that one could try if uh, a particular measure doesn't tend to work for sleep apnea. Mm, Great. 
Yeah. So really for our listeners, just to really understand this issue, hopefully from all this wonderful information you shared, if um, anyone listening suspect of themselves or their family members may have some of the symptoms, they can, we definitely encourage them to go to a professional, to medical provider, to really check it out and talk about possible treatment and talk about possible ways to help themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Remmer. Uh, this is a wonderful share of information. I think it's really helped a lot of us to understand um, sleep apnea to a much deeper level. So uh, I also want to ask at the end, is there if any of our listeners want to find more about your information or your practice, I don't know whether you have a practice or a book or something, is there any way they can find you? Yeah, I, I practice at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, so they can definitely look me up there. Uh, or as we talked about on sleepeducation.org website, you'll have a list of accredited centers. So sometimes it's not easy to uh, come to Rochester, though we have a telemedicine opportunities now. But um, my colleagues are as well uh, qualified, if not more, sometimes than me as well. So any of us would be happy to see you if there's anything that we can be of any help. Great, great. Mayo Clinic is so famous, even among uh, Chinese. In China, we all know about Mayo Clinic. Wow, wonderful. <laughs> That's great to hear. <laughs> great. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Really enjoy talking with you. No, same here. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. If you have learned anything new from our conversation, please feel free to leave a comment and let me know. For more episodes and show notes, please check out our website at deepintosleep.co. I have two recorded online courses to help you improve your sleep quality. You can find it on the same website. I have had so many great guests recently, so our podcast has been back to a weekly schedule. If you have any questions about sleep or any guests you want to have on my show, please feel free to email me and let me know. My email address is ishan at manbodygarden.com. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ishan. I will see you next time. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed.